The truth is that what the non-Jewish world has done with the Holocaust is the same as what the non-Jewish world has done with Jewish experiences for thousands of years, which is to appropriate a Jewish experience, say that it happened to everyone, and then say that living Jews are actually irrelevant to this story. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoidi. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Dara Horn, the prolific, award-winning author, essayist, and professor of literature. She has written five novels and a non-fiction essay collection titled People Love Dead Jews. She earned three National Jewish Book Awards. Dara's recent essay in The Atlantic, Is Holocaust Education Making Anti-Semitism Worse?, sparked discussion across the Jewish world about one of the hallmarks of Jewish education and education about Jews for the last 50 years. In this episode, Dara and I speak about what she found out while researching the piece, her thoughts about identity, anti-Semitism, Jewish culture, and much, much more. Take a listen. For many decades, Holocaust education was touted as probably the panacea for many of the problems the Jewish people had. We would use it to fight anti-Semitism, but we would also use it to strengthen Jewish identity. And now there is a malaise around it. Maybe that bet wasn't a good one or a safe one or the right one. And Dara Horn who's with us now, has written extensively about Holocaust education and what are the impact that it's having in the Jewish community and in the world. So that is amazing to have you here. Thanks for having me. Uh, talking about these important issues and many more. So what did we get wrong about Holocaust education? We, the royal we, everybody. What did everybody get wrong about Holocaust education? Well, so there's a long backstory here, as you can yeah. imagine. And so this is research I did for a piece I published recently in The Atlantic, which was a piece they commissioned me to do about Holocaust education in America. So I want to specify that my comments are focused on the way this has evolved in the United States. And obviously, it's a very different dynamic in Israel. It's a different dynamic right. in Europe. So, yes. What I discovered in researching, looking into sort of the history of this, was that this was sort of a, an investment that was initially made by the American Jewish community very explicitly in an attempt to push back against anti-Semitism. And that goes to one of the origin stories of Holocaust education in America, is from a phrase that maybe some of your older listeners will immediately know what I'm talking about, Nazis and Skokie. Yeah. This was, yeah, so I'm young. We had a whole conversation about Skokie with David Bernstein about, I gotcha. you know. Okay, yeah. so then your listeners probably already know this story, but this was an incident in the 1970s. In 1977, the American Nazi Party 
they asked for a permit from the Chicago suburb of Skokie to march in their Nazi uniforms in this very Jewish town, which also, in addition to being a large Jewish population at that time, had a huge survivor population. The town tried like every possible legal option to you know, block the march. They tried to charge these people exorbitant insurance and all this. And it became this court case and national media circus. In the end, the law basically sided with the Nazis because of the First Amendment. But in the end, because of this public backlash, this Nazi group never ended up marching at all. I spoke to a lot of people who were living in Skokie at that time and who were involved in local government at that time and involved in the Jewish community at that time. And basically what happened was that this it was almost like what the Eichmann trial did in Israel, where this was survivors weren't really talking about their experiences before that. And this was sort of what inspired a lot of them to be more public about sharing their experiences. The difference that in the United States versus what happened with the Eichmann trial is that this was not about Jewish identity. This was really for them about sharing this experience with their non-Jewish neighbors. And what you then have is these survivors really sort of organize themselves. And they passed years later, one of the first mandates to, you know, to require Holocaust education to be taught in public schools. They later, they built one of the uh, first Holocaust museums in America in Skokie. Today, it's like the second largest Holocaust museum in America after the one in Washington. This was a large effort that started there and then was, you know, mirrored in a lot of communities around the country. And, you know, what's funny is that they, you know, they tell that story in Skokie in the museum and elsewhere as a kind of like a triumphant story of like vanquishing hatred. But what's interesting to me about it is that actually what you see there is the community pivoting to education because of the failure of the law. And what I mean by that, and this actually, this is not my thought. This was, there's a historian, James Loeffler, who teaches at University of Virginia, who I... Yeah, also a guest of our podcast. Yes, wonderful person and a fantastic scholar. And his take on this, having studied this history, was that it's basically that in Skokie in 1977, people were asking this question, what can American law do to protect people from anti-Semitism? And the answer kind of turned out to be not much. And then this is his interpretation that the community then really pivots to education because of the failure of the law. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's this idea like, OK, maybe we can play this long game to sort of change yeah. people's minds and to sort of set this in motion. So it's interesting, I mean, kind of pivoting back to the law in some cases, right, with laws and anti-BDS laws and the like. But we can talk about it later. But yes, there is an element of going back to that. But yeah, but sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, so that's what you see. And then, you know, that sort of continues over many years. The U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington was actually quite a protracted process. It started with like President Carter in 78 and then didn't open until 1993. But you see this sort of growing acceptance of this idea of Holocaust education being part of American public education. And what I think is interesting is that this has sort of now become this kind of reflexive thing that people go to as a way of combating anti-Semitism through education. And I saw that very clearly in researching this, because when you have this spike in anti-Semitic hate crimes, if you just look at FBI statistics or whatever statistics you want to look at in the past, let's say, 10 years, what you find is that there's more and more states respond to this by passing these Holocaust education bills. And I even spoke with a few state legislators about this, although that didn't make it into the article. But it was interesting to speak to those state legislators. And what emerged from some of those conversations was the idea that the beauty of a Holocaust education mandate in your state is that it can pass. Because, you know, even though, let's say everyone wants to 
combat bigotry and whatever that looks like in their mind. There's so many ways that can be framed in a bill that it's in this very polarized partisan environment, it's never going to pass. Right. So, you know, let's say if you're a person, you know, more to the left and you're framing this as like diversity, equity and inclusion, or let's say you're a person more to the right and you're framing this as, you know, civics and democratic participation, like, yeah, it's very hard to pass a lot of these things if you have a very divided state legislature. Fortunately, the thing that most lawmakers in America can still agree on is that Nazis are bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't want to look like the person who voted against Holocaust education. Fortunately, right. that's still something that people can get behind. And then you f- sort of feel like you solved a problem. And I, what I well, saw some things that there are very fine people among the Nazis, but let's not go there. Yes. Right. So fortunately, <laughs> you know, fortunately, most American lawmakers still <laughs> yeah. can, still 100 percent behind the idea that Nazis are bad. Yeah. So thank God for that. But what you find, though, is that sort of when, you know, these States are trying to respond to this, which, you know, to their credit, they're trying to respond to this. They that's where they go is Holocaust education. In fact, there was also just recently a bill that was I think it hasn't passed yet. I think it was just introduced in the House and in the Senate that was so there was a federal bill like this that was right. about actually it was about auditing some of these programs. But the if you look at the language of the bill, there's this assumption that, you know, the way to to fight anti-Semitism in America is by improving Holocaust education. That's the very clear. That's, that's the assumption. Kind of, I heard someone is like, like 44 states or something like that have Holocaust education, like some. Uh, so like, interestingly, before 2016, it was only six. And now it's, yeah, like I think there's, I mean, it sort of depends how you count. But yeah, like a, it was about, you know, maybe 18 more states passed these. Right. States, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Since 2016. So what was interesting to me, though, is that when you look at this sort of the goal of this program for and here I want to be clear, I'm talking about in the research I did for this piece, it was I was very focused on the impact of this on sort of the broader American community. So this wasn't about the way the role this plays within the Jewish community, which right. I do think is quite different. Um, these are sort of, you know, the way they're teaching these things in schools. And these are K to 12 schools. There's just this assumption that this is, you know, this is what works. And what I thought was interesting is that you have now 50 years of these efforts in the United States of educating students about the Holocaust with the goal of preventing anti-Semitism. I mean, obviously there's many other good reasons to teach the history of the Holocaust, but if you look at just that function of it, what I think is really interesting is, and especially when you look at sort of the burgeoning of that, you know, certainly after the, the opening of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in 1993, no matter how you measure it, rates of anti-Semitic attacks and, you know, and attitudes and all of those things, are much higher now in the United States than they were right. when the right. museum opened in 1993. So, I mean, and look, correlation does not yeah, I mean, there's correlation, but right. I'm just sort of thinking like, is this working? Right. And right. so then I look into the data and what was amazing to me about, first of all, that there isn't a lot of great data about this. And you'd think like, you know, 50 years of investment of this, that there would be, you know, a lot of inquiry into it. There really isn't. The data that does exist there's no convincing evidence that Holocaust education prevents anti-Semitism. When you look at studies of Holocaust education that are often touted by people who are you know, promoting these curricula and things like that, they sometimes do show positive results. But the positive results are things like, you know, they increased my, you know, this class increased my critical thinking. It's things like that. And what I found really interesting was there were very few studies that actually looked at you know, anti-Semitic attitudes as a result and about exposure to Holocaust education. And one of the only studies I could find that looked at that was actually it was not in this country. It was in England, but it actually happens to be one of the most robust studies of Holocaust education that's ever been done. It was 8000 students 
These are all British secondary school students. So that's 12 through 18 year olds. And England is a place where they've had mandatory Holocaust education for, I think, 25 years. And they also have a national curriculum. So unlike in the United States, where every school is doing a totally different thing, there's, you know, there's a little bit more standardization there. And what I thought was fascinating was that these researchers found that they surveyed 8,000 students and then they interviewed several hundred of them at length. And what they found was that even the students who knew the historical facts, so the kid who, they didn't sleep through the class, right? I mean, they got all yeah. the information that was supposed to be imparted by this class. Even those students, there's one question that none of them could answer, which was, why did the Nazis target the Jews? And when the researchers pressed them on this question, the kids' answers came from Nazi propaganda. Wow. I mean, the kids were saying things so like, So they were well, pirating things that the Nazis were saying. Like, because right. that was the only thing they learned. And they're like, well, I guess it's because they were really rich, and, you know, and they yeah. took the Germans' money. I mean, things like that, which were right. either they were getting from the Nazi propaganda that they studied in their Holocaust education class, or it's just an undercurrent in our society that there are these sort of anti-Semitic assumptions that people are not even right. aware of them. And that was also really telling is that, and I think that this is very similar to the way this is taught in the United States, is that they found that these students who had been through this Holocaust education class, over 80% of them correctly knew what the word racism meant. Over 80% of them knew what the word homophobia meant. Of students who had completed a Holocaust education class, less than a third knew what the word anti-Semitism meant. The Holocaust is taught often as a, like a case study in morality. It's extracted from Jewish history. It's extracted from European history. And anyway, so I just came out of the looking at all this. And then also, you know, I mean, I also went around the country talking to Holocaust educators, talking to students, talking to teachers. And, you know, and many of these people are people who vast majority of them are not Jewish. And I just came to this conclusion that, you know, Holocaust education is it's important for a lot of reasons, one of which is related to anti-Semitism, which is fighting Holocaust denial. But I came to the conclusion that Holocaust education is simply incapable of addressing contemporary anti-Semitism. Let's dig a little deeper on, on how the themes that you just mentioned, like there's an element of how the Holocaust is taught. I mean, there, there's something I don't remember if it was in your article in the conversation we had in a conference where we where you were talking about the Holocaust Museum it's all about saying that, well, the Holocaust victims were just like us, or just people like us, that there is the erasure of their uniqueness, of their difference, right? Yeah. And, and the idea of making what you just said, the Holocaust is sort of the yardstick for morality in the world. And that doesn't seem to be working. So can you expand more on that, on the idea that sort of the Anna Frank thing, which is like, it's just a girl like any other girl. And why would that happen to her? Yes. So this is a very profound problem and often unexamined problem with this. So one example that I've given it about of this is from the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington. They have a children's exhibit called Daniel's Story. This is it's like a walkthrough sort of exhibit where you walk into this you know, generic German Jewish child's home in Frankfurt. And you see his soccer trophies on the wall and his you know, pictures from his teams at school. And, you know, you have his after school snacks in the kitchen and you have, you know, his dad was a war hero. So you have his dad's war medals. And the goal is, of course, to make it like any American child's suburban home. Right. I mean, it's what it's, this is supposed to feel like. And then, you know, in the next room, you go to the ghetto or wherever. And this is exactly the message is that, like, you know, this was people just like you and me. And I think that this is often sort of a well-meaning 
thing that many educators do to try to combat prejudice is this message that we send where we say, see this group of people who you might be bigoted against. Oh, you shouldn't hate those people because they're just like you and me. They're just like everyone else. The problem with this is that Jews spent 3000 years not being like everyone else. I mean, this is like one of the, you know, it's almost the premise of Judaism, right? Is that the whole ancient world was worshiping their Marvel Cinematic Universe of sexy deities. And the Jews are like the losers in the school cafeteria with their bossy, unsexy, invisible God, right? I mean, this is, <laughs> Jews have never been like everybody else. And that's sort of the point. You know, then the other problem of this, of course, is that, you know, specifically related to Holocaust education is that, I mean, the Nazi project was not just about murdering six million people just like you and me. It was about erasing Jewish civilization. And in a sense, when we're teaching it this way, what we are doing is participating in that erasure. When the Holocaust Museum in Washington opened in the 90s, I actually covered its opening. I was a teenager and I was sent by a teen magazine to write about this museum, which, you know, this teen magazine then published my article, like, between a list of makeup tips and an article about bulimia. And, you know, and I wrote about, you know, at that time, like, how wonderful this was. And I remember being confronted by a woman in my community who was a survivor. And I mean, you know, this is in the 1990s. The Jewish community at that time was full of Holocaust survivors. And I remember being confronted by a woman in this community who was a survivor who said, you know, who and I was telling her how like, oh, isn't this a wonderful thing that, you know, this teaches American kids that Jewish kids who died in the Holocaust were just like them. And she just started screaming at me. What if they weren't just like them? Would it have been okay yeah. to murder them if they weren't just like yeah. them? And she raised this interesting question. She says, why do we have this kid's soccer trophies on the wall? And not his menorah or his bar mitzvah. Correct. Right. Or his, right, his uniform from his Zionist youth group, right? Or his right. Uh, songbook from his uh, Yiddish speaking, you know, uh, youth yeah. club. Why do we have dad's war medals? Why don't we have dad's tefillin? Why don't we have dad's tickets to the Yiddish theater? Right. Why right. don't we have dad's membership in the Zionist organization? Right. It's like, why are we erasing this? I mean, that is really it's a participation in this erasure. And what you find is that when you teach people that this the message is that you shouldn't hate other people because they're just like you and me, what you're basically saying is that if they aren't just like you and me, then it's actually OK to hate them. And even and if you don't, I, I don't think that's what they mean. But that's what it ends up happening. Well, and I confronted many Holocaust educators about this, or I yeah. got confronted, but you know, I questioned people about this. You know, I said, you know, do you teach people about the content of Jewish civilization? And there was so much hesitation about it. What I found interesting was often when they would answer, they'd say, of course we do. You know, we now really want to emphasize pre-war Jewish life. And I'm like, that's great. Those people are dead. Right. I mean, and look, I'm, I'm I have a Ph.D. in Yiddish literature. I am all in favor of warning all about the diversity and breadth of Jewish life in pre-war Poland, but not really relevant to Jews you're going to meet today. What was really striking to me was I was in my Holocaust journey across America. At one point I was at the I was at a teacher conference in the Dallas Holocaust Museum where, yeah, there basically no one is Jewish. I mean, I remember at one point, I mean, none of the teachers that are all from Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, these teachers are not Jewish. The people who work at the museum are not Jewish. At one point, I'm looking around. I'm like, wow, other than the holograms, I'm the only Jew in this building. And at one point, I asked one of the docents at that museum, what do students typically ask when they come on this tour? And there are other places where I did follow students around. But here I was there in the summer with this teacher conference. And this docent said to me, you know what they ask? They ask, are there still Jews who are alive today? Because if you went to this museum, you sort of wouldn't know. I mean, but, yes, but, they've got a panel there here and there about, you know, they've got a little panel about Jewish life in Dallas today. They've got a little panel about Israel. But 
that's not but, what but, you're learning when you're at the Holocaust Museum. Right. And that but, really was the most amazing thing to me. But aren't we, the Jewish community, like complicit on that? Like, I don't know how the program for the March of the Leaving is now, but I remember when I did it 20 something years ago, the only thing you learned about Poland is that Jews died there. Like there was no, not a word about Jewish life and culture. It was designed to say the diaspora is just one vast cemetery and Jewish life it exists only in Israel, which of course nobody bought. But we were doing that. Like we were also erasing for different reasons, right? But we were also erasing the life story of the people that died in the Holocaust. We have just no idea the wealth and the richness that those communities had, like a whole language, like, you know, Yiddish as a language, as a spoken language, except certain pockets kind of disappeared. And we've been kind of the first to do that in a way. Well, so, oh, I have a lot of thoughts about this, as you can imagine, yeah. especially as a person with a PhD in Yiddish. Who went on March of the Living? I Maybe we were even on the same trip. I was there in 1992. Oh, but yeah, we were. Yes, <laughs> I turned 14. I turned, sorry, I turned 15 in Treblinka. So yeah, that was fun. So yes, I know what you're talking about. And more so, I mean, and I think that, it, I think a book, I played two different roles at that time in the American Jewish community and in the Jewish community in Israel. Because I think what you're talking about was even more so for students from Israel, because I mean, and that was going on for a very long time in Israel where they would, you know, basically take these kids to Poland and, and this is why, right? That was a huge element of Israeli education for a long time. And in the United States, it was a little bit of a different role. In the United States, I think for the Jewish community, there was a period in time, as you describe, where it was almost like, scare you into being Jewish, right? Like, you know, it's right. like, well, you know, if all these people died and you can't even be bothered, it was something like that sort of message, right? And those people were not cool. They spoke this guttural ancient language that nobody can understand. They had their beers, they had their, you know, like, they were not the cool American Jews that we pretend to be. I'm sorry, I'm a little confused about who, when you say those people. The, the people that died in the Holocaust. Like, there were not people that an American Jew would want to identify with, to yes. put it, well, to so put this, it a little yes. bit bluntly. Yeah. Okay. So there, there's an even deeper story here, which goes way beyond Holocaust memorialization or education, which is about the American Jewish view of Jewish life in Europe up until the Holocaust. Um, right. You know, there's sort of this sentimentalization of that life. And, you know, you see this in like things like Fiddler on the Roof, you know, this idea that, you know, and I think that it was, I think honestly that it was easier for American Jews to see the um, European Jews whose fate they were spared. I think it was easier psychologically to see those people as these like sad sacks who were like these primitives who didn't know any better or something than to regard those people as their intellectual equals. I think that there's a, a much deeper story there that goes way beyond the way we think right. about the Holocaust. But and it has a lot more to do with the mass migration and things like that. But, I, you know, and I think that we are still dealing with there's some psychological residue of that. When you say that we were complicit in this, you know, I used to think this and I used to be very angry about this, but I actually don't think that's true anymore. I think that the kind that kind of exposure to that sort of education that maybe people your age and my age went through, I don't see that happening with younger people. I don't right. see in the Jewish community this sort of attempt to sort of, you know, peg Jewish identity to the Holocaust. I, I haven't really seen that as such a driving factor in 
the Jewish community as it was a generation ago. So I, I don't really see that as, as a problem anymore. Wait, if you look at the Pew study, it says that, I don't know, some staggering number, 84% or whatever, think that they're the most important element on their Jewish identity is the memory of the Holocaust. Okay, well, here's the thing. Those people are the same as the non-Jewish community because there's these people, these are people who have maybe are Jewish, but have no Jewish education. Uh-huh. They're getting the same Jewish education that non-Jews are getting in their public school. Right. Which is about the Holocaust. And right. that's all they have. So what I've sort of warned is that's not because those people are learning about the Holocaust in Hebrew school, which used to be true. Now it's because they don't the know. They know. Be- and that's the right. only thing they know, because that's they literally are getting exactly the same education that non-Jews in this country. Very have. interesting. And I, I think that that is a difference because, you know, there were, you know, in our generation. So, in, you know, we're both, you know, I'm guessing how old you are, but, you know, I mean, I'm 46. So people in our generation, there were still, and I think in our generation, people who were sort of marginally you know, whose families were completely secular, but there still was this idea like, oh, your, your kid should still have a bar mitzvah. So you still send them to Hebrew school for a few years or something. And right. people in that sort of category of affiliation, I feel, are simply no longer affiliated at all. I, I mean, you know, and look, there are demographers who know way more about this than I do. So that's, you know, I'm not the person to sort of parse all that. But I just think that the reality is that, you know, the people who are checking the box on the Pew survey that they're Jewish, but they're secular, they're culturally Jewish. These are not people who have any... They right. didn't get this from the Jewish community. They got this from their public school class about the Holocaust. And they're like, huh, oh, I guess this is kind of about me. There is another element in the Holocaust. I don't know what to call it. Education or even obfuscation, manipulation, which is being used as the ultimate yardstick for good and evil in the world. And there, we are too complicit. I mean, if you look at many of our speeches, everything is the Nazis, like Hamas is the Nazis and Iran is the Nazis. And, and as bad as these people are, they're not the Nazis, right? And, is, and Israel is not European Jewry of 1938, thanks God. And in the secular space, you know, AOC talks about the migrants being like treated like the Nazis were treating the Jews and Trump talking about the FBI as the Gestapo. Like there's, it is as though the Holocaust becomes sort of this yardstick by which everything gets measured to the point that it gets completely denaturalized. Like the unicity of the Holocaust, the, it's, it's deep anti-Jewish, anti-Jewish civilization elements are completely obfuscated. Yes. Okay. Well, so there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, you know, as you said, this is, you know, used in the Jewish community as, as this sort of, it's by everyone, as you say. I mean, I yeah. don't think that this is not unique in the Jewish world. I mean, this is like, you know, people are, they're spitting Jewish stars on their lapel and saying they're right. vaccinated, right? I mean, this is yeah. like absurd. So I don't think that this is in no way unique to the Jewish community. What you're getting at, though, is a larger, deeper problem with the way this is taught in these non-Jewish settings and really in, you know, in many settings, but in, especially in non-Jewish settings, where this is treated as this universal lesson in morality. 
Right. And, you know, this is really what my what I found in my research for this piece was it was really being extracted from history as this case study in morality. I talked about the origins of this with you know, the Nazis and Skokie situation that comes from the Jewish community. There's also an origin to Holocaust education from a non-Jewish source, which is sort of a movement among public school teachers in the even before the Nazi incident in Skokie in the early 1970s. And these mostly were non-Jewish teachers who were kind of pushing for this to be used as a way of as a way of teaching morality in a secular society. It was a movement in education to sort of teach, you know, what we now call social and emotional learning or affective learning, you know, right. what they used to call character education, right? I mean, there was kind of a movement for this in the 1970s after the Vietnam War for a way to sort of try to teach students about, you know, just moral decision making in some way. And this was really being used as like this case study. So what I think is really fascinating about this and which I don't think is it's completely unconscious the way this is used in a broader non-Jewish community is that, as you say, this is a universalized story. And you see that in even the way that often in these museums where I would travel around the country and go to these museums and often like, you know, the story that they would tell, the Jews are done, are no longer in this story after 1945. Because a lot of these museums, like you'd come out of the historical exhibit and then there'd be some kind of contemporary yeah, exhibit. about Rwanda or about Yes, right, like, exactly. It would be yeah. about, you know, genocides around the world. And then there'd be some interactive gallery about, you know, like, you know, what are you doing to take a stand against, you know, and, hatred? And when you go to the Museum of African-American History in Washington, you don't see an exhibit about slavery around the world today. And that museum. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you do, but I, I, when I went, there wasn't. 1865. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't end in 1865. Yeah. It doesn't even end in 1965. Right. I mean, yeah, it's you know, and the idea that you would end that museum in 1865 and then talk about enslavements around the world, and then have some you know interactive display about how human trafficking is still happening today, and you know, what are you doing to be an upstander, stand up against human trafficking? Like, I mean, think how insulting that is to Black history. And the reason it's insulting is because it's it would be saying that this experience of this group in this country, we only really care about it because it's a symbol for something else that really matters. It doesn't and guess what? Enough. It's dehumanizing to be used as a symbol. What I think is really interesting, though, is that there's an unspoken piece of this, which accords with a long history that has you know long precedes the Holocaust, which is the truth is that what the non-Jewish world has done with Holocaust is the same as what the non-Jewish world has done with Jewish experiences for thousands of years, which is to appropriate a Jewish experience, say that it happened to everyone, and then say that living Jews are actually irrelevant to this story. The church did this for thousands of years, you know, like right. we're the new Israel. We're the new Israel. I mean, Islam, You're Islam only... did this, you know, we have the real prophecy. You're only goal in the existence was to give us Jesus, and then you can leave the stage kind of thing. I mean, it's very similar. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, this line did not make it into my article, but uh, you know those inspirational calendars that used to be popular when we yeah. were younger? They had like a landscape, and then there'd be some, you know, inspirational quote, you know, journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. When I was a teenager, I, I owned a parody of those calendars that was called a demotivational calendar. <laughs> and it was like, you know, pictures of like, you know, a, a seen with a cliff with like a guy hanging off the cliff or something like that. And I need that. One, yes. Work. Right. I'm sure you can still find it online. Yeah. There was one page of that calendar that every time I would like weave one of these conversations with these Holocaust educators or walk out of one of these museums, I always would think of this page. 
There's a page of this calendar. It was an ocean scene at sunset interrupted by a sinking ship. And the caption said, perhaps the only purpose of your life is to serve as a warning to others. I'm like, wow, that's Holocaust education right there. Six million Jews died to teach you a lesson. Yes, to teach you, like, you know, don't bully people at school. Right. <laughs> or, you know, don't commit genocide, which is yeah. know, something worth learning. But I mean, that's a fairly low bar for people to clear. So basically, Holocaust education went off the rails because it universalized itself too much because it erased Jewish civilization and sort of transformed Jews into just a prop to to teach a universal lesson and it's not about that so if i summarize it in like brutally in just one phrase how do we fix it or do we fix it or is it a lost cause by now so i think that i mean look i'm not arguing that we shouldn't be teaching people about the holocaust i mean unfortunately there's a major reason to be teaching people about the holocaust which is holocaust denial and distortion which is an enormous problem and I think that's essential to teach people about. I mean, I think there are also there are other reasons that it's worth learning about this that have nothing to do with specifically with the Jewish experience. Things like, you know, you're learning about the fragility of democracy, you know, how tyranny takes hold. You know, there are dynamics of genocide that I mean, people, these are things that are worth learning. I don't want to make it sound like I think that, you know, we should never learn about right. this. There's sort of two pieces of it that I have a problem with. Number one is this extraction of where you're losing this opportunity to learn about what anti-Semitism actually is. And that is a piece that I do see changing, talking to educators that is sort of becoming more something that a lot of people who are Holocaust educators are trying to teach more about. I mean, what's interesting is that, like, in a sense, you kind of can't say the part that you kind of want to say, which is that, you know, in a sense, we in the Jewish community are kind of saying, like, you know, we want you to know about this story because we want to protect ourselves from you. I mean, because that's actually the story, you know, and I was once because talking about we don't trust you. Well, I mean, this is the real thing that it's like sort of too scary to say. I mean, it's almost right. too scary but to say true. even on this in this conversation of ours. That's really the reason that this is important to us in the Jewish community. It's really it's for that reason. I mean, and, and I remember speaking to students once about you know my problems with this Daniel story about how, you know, this imagine if this were really telling you about the you know, actual content of Jewish life. And one of the students this is with a group of Jewish teenagers. And one of the students made this suggestion. They said, well, like, if you're thinking about how 99% or whatever of the people come to the DC Holocaust Museum are not Jewish, they really shouldn't even have an exhibit that's Daniel's story. What they really should have is an exhibit that's Hans's story, which is about Hans and his soccer team, you know, the non-Jewish boy and his soccer team. And, you know, here's his dad's war medals and here's his after school snacks. And then here's how he joined the Hitler Youth and then started executing babies. And this yeah. is what could happen to you. Like, yeah. this is what we want you to know, is that you could be this person. Put everybody through the through a variation of the Milgram well, experiment. I mean, but it's not just but even that it's not just Milgram experiment also. And I think that, you know, identifying these unspoken anti-Semitic attitudes Right. that are so part of a non-Jewish society, including, unfortunately, ours, they are so part of a non-Jewish society that people don't even, it's like they're not even conscious, right? I mean, like these kids who would answer the question, you know, like, oh, why Nazis target the Jews and Muslims because Jews are rich, yeah. right? Like that you're not even thinking about it. And, and hey, good old 
Jewish education, people knowing about what Judaism is and means and what Jews really are. It was good for 3,000 years. It can still work. Well, so this is what I wanted to get to, actually. So that was, I was trying to answer a question of, like, how could Holocaust education yeah. be modified? But I still feel like that's not the way. Because, I mean, the reality is, like, most of history, anti-Semitism does not result in mass murder of millions. Like, honestly, like, I mean, that is, like, def you know, basically defining anti-Semitism as genocide is not really helpful. Because then it makes everything else seem irrelevant. Whereas, I mean, that's just not what anti-Semitism is. So part of it is sort of understanding that this is a mental virus that affects people throughout the history of the West. So that's one piece. But as you say, I actually think that there's a totally different approach that we could be taking if our goal is to combat anti-Semitism, as opposed to teaching people about the Holocaust, which, as I said, there's reasons to teach people about the Holocaust. But I think if our goal is combating anti-Semitism, I don't really get why we aren't deeply investing in teaching people. And when I say people, I don't just mean Jews. I mean the broader community in the United States about Jews who are alive today and the content of Jewish civilization. More Stiesel and less Holocaust. I mean, not even Stiesel. How about like the Torah? What do Jews do today? Because I'll tell you, right. like I said, these kids in the Dallas Holocaust Museum are asking, are there still Jews alive today? They don't know. And, yeah. you know, there isn't really, you know, the honestly, the best way to combat any kind of bigotry is personal relationships. The problem with that is that we're in a massive disadvantage because we're only 2.4 percent of the population in the United States. Right. And most Americans are never going to meet Jews. So, you know, failing that, you have other options. One is like, you know, media portrayals. Right. You know, but then another is like really education. Like, I don't understand why it's mandatory for people to learn about how everybody killed Jews, but it's not mandatory for people to learn about who Jews are. The right. basic facts of Jewish identity, the content of Jewish civilization. And I've, for example, if you think about like, what does it say in like a high school history textbook about Jews? I mean, if it has something about ancient history in that book, maybe there's a page about the Israelites. Right. It probably doesn't even tell you that those people are Jews, right? I mean, they're people who died a long time ago. Who cares? So, you know, maybe it has that. And then if maybe it's a, you have it has, one page about religions of the world and you have a maybe picture. There's a page about re exactly religions of the world. And, you know, and then, of course, the kids ask, like, why is this one of the big five religions when there's like, you know, 12 people who are part of this religion? Right. <laughs> right? Like there are probably more, you know, I don't know. I'm sure there's all kinds of just a rounding error in the Chinese census. Right. So. You know, I mean, then kids are legitimately asking, you know, why is this? I mean, somebody just asked this in my kids middle school recently. You know, why is this one of the big five religions when they're like 0.000 percent of the population? And the teacher then has to explain the answer to that one thing you could say is that you know, why are Jews not in this history textbook? You could say like, well, there are a lot of people who are not in that textbook. Probably there doesn't say anything about the Yazidis either. Okay. Right. But the problem is like, Yazidis are not fundamental to the history of Western civilization. Judaism is foundational to the history of Western civilization. You cannot understand Western civilization without understanding Judaism. And interestingly enough, when we started learning about the Yazidis and the suffering, you know, in the hands of Muslim fundamentalists, we actually learned who the Yazidis were and what they believed. And it was just an unknown tribe that somehow got targeted. Well, I mean, unfortunately, you know, this is that same paradigm of genocide education. I mean, there's right. not a lot people know about Armenians either, other than that they got killed in the Armenian genocide, right? right? right. I mean, right. you know, right. there's a lot, you know, what's the one thing you know about Rwanda? As somebody that works with funders, I see Holocaust education as a sign of another troubling trend among philanthropists, which is 
looking for the silver bullet, meaning teaching education was going to be a silver bullet to fight anti-Semitism or to shock people into Jewish identity, and then take people to Israel, and that's going to be the silver bullet. And it doesn't work like that, does it? Like, I mean, I wish I could I could send a message more clearly to funders that there's no such a thing as a silver bullet when you're dealing with complex social processes like building identity or fighting centuries-old bigotry, right? Yeah. I mean, look, there's no silver bullet when it comes to education in general, right? I mean, education is, you know, it requires long-term commitments and it requires, you know, years of personal relationships and a lot of intentionality. What I thought was amazing, though, is, you know, what what I found in looking at Holocaust education was like, there's so much resources put into this. Right. And it did show because... Like one thing that, you know, all these teachers, like in all these, you know, non-Jewish teachers, never had a Jewish student, they're all just like, you know, the kids love learning about the Holocaust. I'm like, okay, great. But what was interesting is actually one of the reasons the kids, quote, love learning about the Holocaust is because there's been so much invested in these educational curricula. Like the lesson plans for Holocaust education are like so much better than the lesson plans for a lot of other things. Like there's so much thought and intentionality and, you know, sort of up to the minute. No, we're not going to do a lecture. We're going to do participation. You know, we're not going to give the kids a test. We're going to have them do, you know, a hands-on research project, like whatever. So what I noticed over and over again was this investment in Holocaust education that was always like very top of the line investments. Like, you know, I mentioned earlier, and I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, for example, like these holograms. Yeah, yeah. Right. There's this enormous investment in, you know, turning these Holocaust survivors into holograms. And then you can go to these museums and have these holograms and, you know, or there's like Auschwitz VR. Right. You know, where you can put on a headset and then you take this tour of Auschwitz. I'm just like, I want a VR tour of Tel Aviv. I want a hologram of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Think of all the other people we could have holograms of, you know, and who you could ask questions to. I mean, wouldn't that solve the problem of like, oh, I'm never going to meet a Jew in here in wherever in Texas, you know, instead of having this Holocaust survivor hologram come to your class and answer kids questions like you could have like, you know, people who actually are you know involved in Jewish life from many versions of Jewish life coming to talk about what this is like. You know, you could have, you know, like I said, VR tours of Tel Aviv. You could have I mean, there's so many things that you could be doing with these resources for a non-Jewish audience, you know, or for a broader American audience, which includes Jews who, you know, maybe are not affiliated with the organized community. I mean, and then another thing is, you know, so clear is that I remember, I forget which city I was speaking in, and it's probably best that I forget so that people don't get angry at me, but there was some city I was speaking in recently where, not during my talk, but after people from the community came up to me and said, you know, there was some philanthropist who had given some crazy amount of money to build a new Holocaust museum in this city. And they said to me, you know, for that amount of money, we could have free day school tuition for every Jewish child in the city. So well put. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I mean, I have four children. My kids go to public school. You know, would my decisions about where to send my kids to school have been different if Jewish day school was free? Probably. Free or affordable. Let's not say free. Whatever it is. I mean, you know, it's it's those are sort of two different things, you know, educating a non-Jewish or broader American public versus, you know, educating people within the Jewish community. But like, yes, there's no silver bullet. Education is a long term investment, no matter how you look at it. And also, you don't know what what will happen with it. I mean, that's one thing that actually was very difficult to write this piece for The Atlantic, because, you know, the people who are involved in Holocaust education, like every single person I interviewed is such a better person than I am. (laughs) <laughs> like they're just like the, the kindest, most thoughtful, right. really like intelligent and sincere. And 
every single one of these people I would love to have be my child's teacher. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, it felt like, you know, criticizing these people feels like clubbing a baby seal, right? I mean, these people only want to do the best and, you know, but what I thought was really, you know, amazing though, is that like, you have a larger problem with education is that like, you know, talented people are no, are not attracted to this field. I mean, that's a problem that goes way beyond the Jewish community. Right. It's a funding problem. I mean, and I think that there's, you know, schools benefited from sexism for generations where there were extremely talented women who didn't have a lot of options and became educators. And now that we are less sexist, this is no longer a career that attracts a lot of intelligent people who could be doing a lot of other things and being paid better. I mean, that's just the reality. So, I mean, this is sort of like broader questions that, you know, expand way beyond the Jewish community, but somebody spent the money to turn these Holocaust survivors into holograms. Somebody spent the money to make an Auschwitz VR. And the other day I was at, I have, I do have one child who's in a Jewish day school and I was at a school event of his and there was somebody there who had a VR that they had developed that was of rituals in the temple, the Avoda service or something where you were like walking through the, the Beit HaMikdash. And, yeah. you know, I mean, like that's, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're going to teach a broader public one thing about Jewish culture, Yeah, don't do sacrifices in the that's temple. That's probably but... not the thing you're going to go yeah. for. But I mean, there's so many possibilities for how you right. could educate people in a really up to the moment, state of the art way. There's so many investments that we could be making. I mean, it just kind of broke my heart that this money is being spent on emphasizing these poor Holocaust survivors and freezing them at the moment of their lives where they had the least agency and immortalizing this history during which the Jewish people had the least agency. And that's just tragic to me. So talking about people and characters with agency, besides writing about Holocaust and dead Jews, you're you're also a novelist. Yes. You're right. So tell us about your fiction work. Sure. So yes, this most recent book, People Love Dead Jews, my nonfiction book was Departure for Me. I wrote five novels before this. And all of my novels deal very, very deeply with Jewish civilization in many different forms. So what I my novels typically do is I have a contemporary story and a historical story that will intertwine. And I started doing this 20 years ago, or I guess now, yeah, about 20 years ago, because I was doing a PhD in Yiddish and Hebrew literature at that time. And I honestly got really jealous of the writers whose work I was studying. Yeah. I wasn't jealous of their lives, which were mostly horrible, but I was jealous of their language. Because I just felt like there was this sort of amazing thing that was happening for writers in Jewish languages. And you still see this with, with Hebrew writers today in many cases. They're able to sort of draw into this sort of deep layers of meaning that are just part of any language, right? I mean, every language has an archaeology of belief that's built into it that native speakers often don't even hear. You know, it's like something that comes to the surface every time people sneeze. And, you know, there's sort of these ancient beliefs and references that are just built into the language. And what I found is that, I mean, and not every writer is going to consciously engage with those, but many do. And I just sort of felt like there was always this feeling of inauthenticity in American Jewish life that I had experienced growing up. I mean, and I come from a a highly educated family. My mother has a PhD in Jewish studies, but I was sort of very deeply aware of this feeling of inauthenticity and this feeling of like thinness of American Jewish culture. And I realized this because I'm a writer. It felt to me that part of the reason for that was the loss of a Jewish language. Because we're sort of in the United States, we have this unusual, not unique, but unusual situation in world history where it's just a large Jewish community that is not using a Jewish language. And I was sort of thinking about ways to address this and in this sort of way that 
young people are ridiculously ambitious, I had this idea like, well, what if I turned English into a Jewish language? And what I mean by that is like, not that I was going to write books with a lot of words in italics, but that I was going to write books where I was using English the way that these Jewish writers in Jewish languages use Jewish languages, which is sort of to tap into this deeper level of text. Of course, as an English writer who's writing for a broad audience of people who, who aren't Jewish, but also don't have a Jewish education, you know, you sort of have to explain more things. But so my novels really do this and they do this through like these thriller plots. So I'm yeah. drawing readers in. And then when the reader dives into this, they find themselves in this world that they then have to discover for themselves. So I'm going to give one example of this. My most recent novel before People Love Dead Jews is actually the opposite of People Love Dead Jews. It was a novel called Eternal Life. And mm -hmm. it's about a Jewish woman who can't die. This wow. is a woman who has been alive for 2000 years. So the story is set in contemporary New York and New Jersey, the contemporary story. But then there's part of the story that goes back to many parts of her extremely long life, going back to her life in Roman occupied Jerusalem, where the reason that she is in this situation is because of a vow that she took in the Beit HaMikdash in the second temple. And then what happens is the temple gets destroyed by the Romans and she has no way out of this vow. And then she's sort of like stuck being alive for 2000 years. And there's one other person in the world who's in the same situation as her. And if you've ever had the bad boyfriend or girlfriend who never goes away and is like continuously trying to get back together with you, imagine if that person really never goes away. So there's sort of <laughs> 2000 like years. Yeah. Yes, it's like this love story slash stalker story that kind of never ends. And um, so but it sort of takes you, of course, there's this element of this where it's just kind of like a fantastical story. And it goes into people in there who are researching life extension and stuff like that. And it's a very contemporary story, but it goes back to the Jewish revolt against Rome. And it goes back to you know, many moments in this woman's 2000 year long life. It sort of becomes this metaphor for Jewish history. I'll have so many questions about that. So first of all, <laughs> that's one. I have like four others. I mean, I've got a book about yeah. Jewish spies during the American Civil War. Anyway, <laughs> like one, one thing that made me raise my eyebrows was the question about authenticity, like you're equating cultural thinness with lack of authenticity. And I think it's not the same, is it? Like I have an issue with the notion of authenticity because there's no such a thing as Jewish authenticity, at least in America. And when we talk about authenticity, we immediately imagine sort of fiddler on the roof, kind of, you know, this nostalgic sort of false vision of, oh, we sort of imagine the Haredi world, which is not authentic, is modern, is deeply modern. So I'm wondering how you define that authenticity in your work. Oh, well, so that was how I felt when I was younger. That was like when I was a teenager and I was interested and in what I, my interest as a writer has always been the function of time. And right. that was true. Even when I was very young, I was sort of obsessed with time and how it works. And I was fascinated by the sort of interplay of literature and religion in this attempt to sort of defeat time. And I had no words for that was the problem when I was right. younger. Like I could not have articulated that in that way when I was like 10. I could not have articulated that when I was 15. And when I, by the time I was 15, I could articulate like, oh, well, I guess I'm interested in Jewish literature. And the problem is, when you're 15 in 1992 in New Jersey and you tell someone you're interested in Jewish literature, they hand you a book by Philip Roth, right. which was like, wow, not what I was looking for at all. 
it took me a while to discover Cynthia Ozick, and then it took me learning Hebrew and then learning Yiddish to discover a lot more writers. So yeah, I mean, I agree with what you are saying. And then I agree with it even more so when you sort of, you know, especially when I did this deep dive into Hebrew and Yiddish literature, and you sort of see that this like this sort of hunger for authenticity is like happening everywhere. And there's that's just part of being alive, right? I mean, that's a constant feeling of that you're somehow removed from where you should be or something like that. I mean, that's part of the But it's chimeric because you can't really find like there's no authenticity. What I'm trying to say yeah, is that well, well, no, so I don't agree that there's no authenticity. I think that, in other words, like it took me, and, and this is what I thought when I was a teenager. This is what I'm trying to say. It's, I agree with so you. So you just called me a teenager? Yeah, no, by the okay, time I was nice. an adult, like I was an adult and I like, you know, studied all this and I did a PhD and like, I mean, I... You know, look, I, the American Jewish community is like, you know, what is it, 350 years old is the robust traditions of it is huge, you know, tremendous institutions that it's built. I mean, this is there's absolutely nothing inauthentic about this community. So, no, this is what I thought when I was younger. I was wrong. But then what I was trying to do is to try to sort of give more depth to the literature because right. I didn't see the sort of, you know, what I found was like what counted as American Jewish literature was, you know, writers like Philip Roth, who are worth reading for maybe other reasons. But like, I mean, these are not people who are like engaging with the content of Jewish civilization. Right. You know, they were writing about Judaism as a social identity, you know, which is a story worth telling, but it just wasn't what I was interested in. And I was sort of interested in what can I do as an artist to draw on this civilization in a way that any English language reader will be able to understand. That was sort of this crazy ambitious challenge that I set for myself. And, you know, now I've been writing novels for 20 years. I mean, like, I just wouldn't think about it that way anymore, but um, that was very much how I was thinking about it at the beginning. How does the idea of a story comes to you? I mean, it's something that all writers wonder and all people that read wonder, like how one day you're lying down there, like doing whatever, and you say, oh, I got to write about a woman who can't die. Well, that one happened in the shower. <laughs> yeah, actually, I for Mother's Day at one point, my husband gave me a, a waterproof notepad and pencil that are like stuck on the wall of the shower because at that time, I mean, as I, I have four children and that's the only place in my house where no one bothers me. Another um, thing I need. Now I need the anti-motivational calendar yes. and I, I need the waterproof. Waterproof uh, notepad, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it says no more great ideas down the drain. You know, so yeah, that actually was something I came up with in the shower. But, you know, I keep notebooks all the time of ideas that, you know, and this is something I've been doing since I was a teenager. Like I, you know, aside from, you know, any personal journals I might keep, I also have notebooks where... I, you know, sort of just keeping what I used to think of it as like I would have when I was younger, I would have like a personal journal of things that happened to me. And then I would have a notebook for things that happened to other people. And that was I mean, and when I say things happen to other people, stories I heard or something I read about and, or something I and saw. And you think and, of, yeah. um, you know, some writers, they imagine one scene and that becomes the kernel of a story. And some others imagine a story and then the scenes follow. So how is it with you? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't plan my books at all. Like, I've never written an outline or anything like that. I don't right. plan it at all. I'm literally writing it the way that you would read it. Like, I want to know what happens next. I am, like, about three-fourths of the way through a new novel. And I'm, I'm in a perpetual state of panic because, like, I don't know what happens next. It's like, how am I going to land this plane kind of situation? Yeah, that happens to me all the time. I mean, you know, and, it's, and the thing is, like, on the first page of a book, anything can happen. But then by the time you get to the end of a book, like, five things can happen. So, I mean, there's, you know, some things that sort of become narrow, but no, I mean, I'm, you know, and, and I know this sounds like this, like when people who aren't artists hear this, they think that people who say this are delusional, but like, cause it sounds like a hallucination, but like, 
you know, the characters do become people who you are, are real to you. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, many times, like, you know, it's like, you know, my husband and I are having dinner at the end of the day. And like, you know, he talks about people he worked with during his day. And I'm talking about people I worked with during my day. His people are real. And that is, that is absolutely, absolutely true. I mean, but like, I, these are my colleagues. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and there's this like weird thing that happens when you, um, you know, when you finish a book where it's almost like, you know, leaving a job where like you're no longer going to see these people in the office anymore. And it's like kind of sad. And like, you know, maybe you'll stay in touch with them, but it's not the same. And yeah, I don't know. There's just a weird. Yeah, yeah. It's very weird. I, I so, so know what you're talking about. I wrote a novel in, I mean, I think we talked about it. I wrote yes, a novel in yes. Spanish. And yes. I mean, it's still not translated, but I, I actually miss the character. Like, I wonder if it's just a fiction and I miss him. Like, I want to talk to him. I want to know what he's doing. I want to know. I miss spending time with him. If somebody would hear me, would say this guy is crazy. But that's yeah. the way it is, right? Yes. And, you know, honestly, it's like it's a little weird for me right now because, you know, this book, this People of Dead Jews, my most recent book, which is nonfiction, it's kind of eaten my life in the past year and a half since it came out. And uh, so, you know, I haven't had a lot of opportunities to go back to fiction. And, you know, also right. I have a lot of people clamoring for me to write more nonfiction and, uh, you know, which is important. And I'm glad that I've had this opportunity to be in this role and to sort yeah. of, you know, help you know, it, change this conversation. But to me, it feels weird to sort of you know, not be creating a story. And I am working on some projects where I am creating a story. So that's, you know. I and and uh, well, it was, an, it was a very important book. So I think that the hiatus from fiction was granted. But any historical figure in Jewish life that you said, oh, I, this is the one story I've always wanted to write, the story of X or Y. Or a period, let's say a a sort of a historical time that you would want to write about. You know, I think people look at my books because they are set in these various different, you know, they draw on these different historical periods and these different, you know, I often, as you say, I have, you know, historical figures in them and think that's how I'm thinking about it, that I'm like, oh, you know, this time I'll write about ninth century Spain or something like that. And I'm never thinking about it that way at all. I'm never thinking about it. And for me, you ask, like, how did this come to you? And it's like, it's not the story. And it's, I just sort of, it, it starts with like a situation. Yeah, it starts with a situation and then it builds from there. And I haven't really thought about like, oh, you know, what do I want to do next? Although, you know, it's funny is that you know, I often have readers telling me, you know, like, oh, you should write about this next. <laughs> you know, I have people like, I've even had people go, you know, you should write about my life. And I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, I don't think you would be happy with how I did that. Don't you have sometimes the feeling that, you know, we are in a moment in time where we need pamphlets and manifestos. We don't need stories, meaning we don't need novels, right? Like I had this conversation when I was writing my novel. A friend of mine says, like, you should write something nonfiction political, something that goes to the heart of things. These are grave times. We are at war, quote unquote. I usually write about that. And of course I didn't, but every time, you know, I write something, that that thing comes back to me, that question, right? Well, I, I mean, I'm literally in this situation right now in that... With your book, with people... Yes, with yes, yeah. because, you know, I published this nonfiction book and I really saw it as kind of like a lot of it was published before. It was pieces I had published right. in different places and, and I just sort of noticed that they all were on a similar theme and I thought, you know, I could probably tie these in together into a book. I could write a few more pieces and this could be a book. I didn't really think about it as this like project or something like that. I was like, well, you know, I can put these things together. And then it's sort of just, I just... I was completely, I've been shocked by the response to this book and also depressed by it. I mean, really depressed by it because I mean, yeah, like obviously as a writer, it's awesome when people 
appreciate your work, but like because of the subject of this book, it's like, wow, I kind of wish people appreciated this book a little less. Yeah. I wish people liked this book less. Um, yeah. But you're absolutely correct that like I do feel like I want to go back to like, you know, my life as an artist and that's just not what's happening. So and I can tell you, you know, if you ask me sort of what I am up to now in terms of, you know, and I wish I could tell you like I'm back working on the novel I was working on before this book. And the truth is I'm not, you know, I would like to be. I'm involved in a few other projects right now. I should probably mention, I just actually, I just signed on the dotted line of this yesterday. The the Weitzman Museum, which is a museum in Philadelphia, it was formerly National Museum of American Jewish History. They're yeah. completely renovating their entire museum. And in a sense, they want to be the kind of like the answer to like, just sort of almost like the anti-Holocaust museum, sort of be The like, antithesis to that one, yeah. Yes, to be like that resource of like the place where you can go to see holograms of living Jews, right? I mean, right. maybe not holograms, but, you know, to be that kind of place for we people. We went to dialogue with living yeah. Yes, to be, you know, for anyone in the public to get an opportunity to sort of engage with living Jewish culture in the United States and to be a hub for that. And so I'm going to be working for them as a consultant as they develop this sort of new vision for this museum and for not just the museum, but for, you know, what the role this museum could play in a broader American Jewish conversation. So that's something I'm working on. I just spoke last night at the Jewish Baccalaureate Service at the United States Military Academy at West Point, which I mean, you know, that must have been an experience. Amazing. I mean, this is the most bizarre thing. I mean, I speak at a lot of college campuses, but not one like this. You know, this was an astonishing thing. This was, they have this, it's part of their commencement. There's, you know, various baccalaureate services. I, you know, for, you know, obviously other religions on campus have them too, but this is something they've been doing for Jewish cadets who are graduating in their Jewish chapel, which is basically their Hillel. This was celebrating the 18 Jewish cadets who are graduating from West Point. 18 cadets. 18 cadets. So out of a class of about a thousand. Men and women or? Men and women. Yes. I think it was, I'm going to get the numbers wrong and be embarrassed, but I think it was about 10 men and eight women or 11 Mm. men and seven women, something like that. You know, not too far off parody. And these were Jewish cadets. And it was sort of amazing to hear about actually the chaplain there who's, you know, the role of the Hillel rabbi, I guess. This was a man named Major David Fromer. He was telling me how you know, the West Point Jewish community is like the the best kept secret among Jewish communities <laughs> on college campuses in America, because, you know, he said there's about 80 Jewish cadets on this campus. And he's like, you know, over 70 of them are at Kabbalah Shabbat every week. Not, and not Israel apartheid week, I guess, in that. No, campus. they don't. Yeah. Not a lot of anti-Semitic graffiti on campus. Yeah. Not a lot of, you know, pro BDS yeah. protests going on. But there's just this robust participation. It's a small, obviously small Jewish community, but robust participation in Jewish life. He was saying, you know, of these 80 cadets, I think it was something like 65 of them went on birthright. You know, I mean, they do these weekend, what they call Jewish warrior weekend retreats with Jewish students from other service academies and from ROTC. It was just sort of an amazing thing. And these students are people who maybe weren't so involved in Jewish life before that but then sort of discovered this while in at West Point. And in fact, I think there were two students in this graduating class who had converted to Judaism during their time at West Point. And it was just sort of this beautiful story where, you know, it goes back to there have been Jews in the West Point since the very first class at West Point in 1802, as they like to say, was half Jewish because there were two graduates and one of them was Jewish. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 1802. But I mean, it's just, a, it's sort of an amazing, and this Jewish baccalaureate service is kind of a beautiful moment in American Jewish life. Um, so interesting. You know, where all these alumni come and Jewish veterans come and it was just sort of a very beautiful, yeah. moving thing. So, so yeah, so, you know, I mean, that's a, something that would not, I probably would not have been invited to speak there if it had been for just my novels. You know, I've been, just had a lot of other things I've done. I mean, I've done, 
DEI for Google's worldwide employees. But, you know, I sort of feel like I sort of was called away from my work as a novelist, in a sense, to do these other things in this sort of moment, this very fraught moment in American Jewish life. But I think that the reason I'm able to do this is because I'm a novelist. I spent 20 years being a compelling storyteller. Telling stories, right. Yes, being a compelling storyteller. We human beings, we think in stories, like we think in narratives, right. Yes, so much of this is about how do we change education? How do we change public conversations? All of those things happen through storytelling. And so, you know, it's not like I was a novelist and then this thing fell in my lap. I mean, I think that my work as specifically as a Jewish writer prepared me to be in this position now that I feel unfortunate that this position exists, (laughs) but um, I feel kind of fortunate to be able to be part of that conversation that I didn't expect to be part of. So to close our fascinating conversation that could last many more hours, and I hope we keep talking about these things because I only went through a third of my list of issues I wanted to discuss with you. But um, we talked about education. We talked a little bit about legacy, about authenticity, depth. What would you like your four children? What would you like them to know about their Judaism? Well, I mean, I've been working on educating them about this for all the years they've been alive. You know, this is actually similar to what I said to the graduates at West Point last night, which is that I see Judaism as the antidote to tyranny. You know, we think of, you know, obviously the core idea of monotheism and resistance to idolatry. The reality is that idolatry in the ancient world wasn't just about praying to a statue. I mean, a lot of ancient peoples had a lot of gods and one of them was a dictator. Right. And so when Jews said that they weren't going to bow to idols, what they really meant is they're not bowing to tyrants. So this is sort of, you know, this idea of battle for human dignity and freedom is a lifelong battle. Mm -hmm. And not just, you know, and battle is the wrong word. I'm thinking about my, you know, thinking about West Point last night, but it's a lifelong conversation and that requires constant devotion and constant learning. You know, I think that there's many different ways to approach that and there's sort of all kinds of doors in, but that those doors are always open. And that's something that I hope that my children will understand and also just really the joy of Jewish life. That's something that I've worked very hard as a parent to convey to my children. Yeah, we can have a whole other conversation about things like my family's Passover Seder, where we literally do this like walk through. It's almost like a Halloween fright fest thing, which we build out in our house where uh, like black lights and neon paint and people in costumes and there's a laser swamp. And, uh, you know, my children act out the story of the Exodus every year and make a movie out of it. My children have no idea that a lot of people find satyrs boring, but also my children are very invested in, they know that they're characters in this story. You know, this is something they know that, you know, they're, and I've sort of given them a lot of space to explore this in any way that interests them. And that takes a lot of different forms. And I imagine it'll take many forms over the course of their lives. And I think that openness to what it means to be part of this tradition that's founded in this idea of freedom, responsibility, and human dignity and that this is not something they don't have to reinvent the wheel on this, that people have been talking and thinking about this for thousands of years. Being a character in your own story. That's a great way of going through life. Thank you, Dara, so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Dara Horn. You can find a link to her article in The Atlantic in our show notes, and her books are available wherever books are sold, as well as through her website, datahorn.com. 
Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you now with a quote from Guy de Maupassant, who wrote, Our memory is a more perfect world than the universe. It gives back life to those who no longer exist. So keep making memories, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives. What Gives.